The Women in Agile podcast series amplifies the voices of outstanding women in the Agile community. We are dedicated to sharing the wisdom and inspiration our community has to offer by telling our stories, being thought leaders, and having open conversations with our allies. This series is brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile organization and Accenture Solutions IQ. Hey everyone, Natalie Warner here, the President and Executive Director of Women in Agile Org. I wanted to thank you for listening to this episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. We're thrilled to have this as a platform to showcase the wisdom of our community. We'd love to get your help to amplify the reach of the series by asking you to go over to iTunes in order to rate and review us. After you're done, take a screenshot of your rating and review. Then post a screenshot to Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn and tag hashtag Women in Agile. If you do this, we'll not only reshare your post, but also add you to a monthly drawing to receive a Women in Agile goodie bag filled with WIA stickers and other treats. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. I'm your host, Leslie Morse, and today we are chatting with Sarah Olivieri. Sarah is a nonprofit business strategist, author, and founder of Pivot Ground, where they leverage her impact method to help nonprofits simplify their operations, build aligned teams, and make a bigger impact without getting overwhelmed or burning out. Sarah, thank you so much for being with me today. It is my pleasure. Yeah, I'm really, I'm, you know, women in Agile as an organization being a nonprofit um, in the journey we've gone through to, to make that reality. Um, I, I'm really interested just not only, right, for me to learn as we're chatting today and in ways that it may help our organization, but I really love having guests um, on our series that are not core to what we tend to think about as right, pure play agilists and right in our niche, because there's so much to learn from just the amazing women that show up in all sorts of sectors and areas. So I, I appreciate you being on with us today. I really do. Yeah, I'm super excited because I don't usually get to enter into that pure agile tech world. And it's really exciting for me to do that. Yeah, so like, let's just actually play with this idea of agile and agility. What does what does it mean to you? Oh my goodness, it means so many things. I think from um, kind of an evolutionary perspective, when I talk to nonprofits about Agile, I usually like to frame it in that with the internet, our world changed. It Everything is moving faster and we have to adapt new ways of working in order to survive and even thrive in that kind of environment. So in, in like, yes, it sounds good if you don't forget that you know what agile means for a second in anything other than the, you know, definition of, oh, the ability to kind of move, it's relevant really because of the internet. Yeah, and so the um, that ability to right be quick, nimble, fast to respond, right, so important. Um, and and I even think about just the world we live in and its rapidly changing conditions, right? As agilists, we often talk about VUCA: volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Mm-hmm. How does that idea of VUCA show up in the work you do with nonprofits? Yeah, so everywhere, although nonprofits probably wouldn't think of it that way, but nonprofit 
guests are so dynamic. So they're usually one solving an incredibly complex, never solved before problem. Like how do we make people happy? How do we end homelessness? How do we, you know, how do we fix people going hungry? Um, these are super, super complex goals. They are not smart goals. They're not measurable. <laughs> They're not attainable. And yet they are the goals of nonprofits. So the, the goal is, right, super, super complex. And then on top of that, you have more people in nonprofits than their equivalent for-profit organizations because every nonprofit is required to have a board of directors of three people from day one. Um, and they have volunteers, they have staff, and then they have um, donors as well as clients. So, you know, if you've ever been involved with a startup, imagine I said, I want you to start up your own business, but you have to have a minimum of three business partners and two products that you're developing that are totally different types of products with different brands at the exact same time from day one. You would be like, no, like <laughs> that business is doomed to fail. And yet that is what nonprofits do. Minimum of three board members from day one. So those are your three business partners. And they are building a fundraising business as well as a mission delivering business pretty much at the same time from day one. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, it's so easy. Like, well, gosh, if that's what I was doing, I'd, you know, develop what's my backlog. I'd use something like Scrum or a Kanban frame, Kanban system, or, you know, something like that just to create sanity for just navigating what that work is. Um, so I, I'm curious in your kind of journey to helping nonprofit organizations, have you done any formal agile training? Because as you and I were prepping for today's discussion, you were throwing around, right, agile terms and things like that. So there, there's something there in your background, in your history. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think I first came at this problem of all the chaos potentially in nonprofits from a leadership perspective. And originally I was very influenced um, by a woman named Margaret Wheatley, who wrote a very well-known book called um, Leadership in the New Science. And she really mm -hmm. draws on principles of open systems and chaos theory and thermodynamics. Um, and I don't think she realized she was, she was kind of discovering a lot of the principles that are in agile from a different a different thinking mode, um, but kind of comes to the same conclusions in many ways, although she doesn't spell it out. So um, I, that's where I started. And then my own business, I started out in nonprofits as a nonprofit leader, executive director, program director. I moved into marketing. And as I built a marketing agency, I got involved with more um, technically sophisticated projects. And that's actually where I got formally introduced to Agile and Scrum. I had um, uh, uh, one of my employees had been formally trained. He came from a programming background. Um, and so he kind of was labeling, he's like, Sarah, you, all these things you're doing, you know, these are the names for them. And so then I started to really learn. I didn't get any formal training um, because I didn't need to. I wasn't in the tech space, but I really started learning, you know, what has already been done 
before me. And so I, you know, I learned about Agile. I learned about Scrum. I learned about um, some people who are applying those into the business space. There's a guy named Todd Herman who has a program called the 90 Day Year where he's really teaching businesses how to work in sprints. Um, so also uh, objectives and key results, OKRs, those kind of start really influencing um, some of, of the work that I was thinking about. So it really kind of moved in this progression of, you know, learning a little more detail about, you know, what had already come before me and then retranslating in that, well, how does this apply to businesses? How does this really apply to nonprofits where no one has really talked, people don't talk about efficiency and productivity in the nonprofit space even though I think they should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but they're not having that conversation. And so they're not being exposed to these ideas very frequently. And I, I love that you're kind of, you're, you're, see, you're connecting the dots across kind of all of the different things. And so I want to actually play on that idea of connecting dots around just like your role as a female, right? Leader, female entrepreneur, right? Someone that is seeing, you know, nonprofit, right? Technology, business, all of these different, like the, the areas that they overlap in. What is your journey sort of been like? And what is your experience as a female been like? Um, Let's just start there, and then I'll, 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 I've got a couple other questions I want to ask you as well. Sure. Um, well, I think, you know, the, how did I end up here as a female in a leadership position, having, having been in many leadership positions? I really just took that mindset of if they didn't say I can't, then I guess I can. <laughs> um, and I really didn't let um, – I didn't – I try really hard not to impose rules on myself that don't need to be there. And I think that's something, you know, as women, we are still raised, um, and depending on how old you are, you have varying degrees of this, but we are still raised with a, a lot of unspoken rules. Um, and even though, you know, my mother's, my mother's older, um, and she is, you know, you might call her a feminist. She's certainly not an activist. She doesn't care much what people think. But still growing up, I learned things around, you know, taking care of men and putting someone else's needs before yours. And maybe, you know, it's not okay to be the loudest in the room or, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't interrupt people. And I really had to just see those um, for what they are, social constructs, and just say, no, I my ideas are good ideas. And I will say, because I know there are many young women out there, when I was young, I didn't know when my idea was actually a good idea or not. I didn't have that perspective. And it really helps to get a few years under your belt so that you can know <laughs> that just because you're young doesn't mean you're not going to have a great idea and to know when your great idea um, is truly a great idea and you need to speak up for it. Um, so, you know, some of it's being a woman, some of it's age, um, but being intentional about, you know, no, I'm going to keep moving forward and, and seeing that, um, that when you, when you get up and you take another step instead of quitting, that's success. Even if you make the wrong step, just the fact that you keep going, you will, you know, out, you will outlive, you will outwalk so many people if you just try again tomorrow. 
Yeah. So, so it's like, if I had to summarize what I just heard from you, Sarah, it's like almost ask for forgiveness, not permission, right? Mm-hmm. If they didn't tell me I can't just like do, you know, do it then if they told you, you can't, um, finding your own voice in terms yeah. of confidence around like what your ideas are and then sort of like being forgiving of yourself because stumbling is part of real life. Absolutely. I think that's probably, you know, one of the most important parts. I recently gave a little training on um, delegation and um, the kind, my kind of big nugget to add to the world of delegation is I go about my life assuming that we misunderstand each other. It's only with a great bit of intention and some luck that two people or forget a group of people manage to actually all get on the same page and understand. I think that's partly like what a lot of Agile is about, right, is getting everybody on the same page. It's really, really hard. And most of the time, you don't communicate well. (laughs) And if you can take that mindset. Yeah, yeah. I want to pause there because there's that assumption, like, let's just operate under the assumption that we misunderstand each other. Like, I just, I almost just want to like, have us be quiet for 30 seconds and have our listeners be like, wow, if I made that assumption about our, my, the agile team or the organization that I'm working with on a day-to-day basis, like what would be different? Because so much could be different. Like what an interesting framing for a retrospective that a team could do. You're just like, yeah. how is this assumption true for us? Like, or yeah. could it be true for us? What power could come from that? Uh, so much power. And I can tell you just kind of to jump forward into, you know, so I actually teach nonprofits how to work in sprints. And we do a lot of work around goal setting because that's one area where it's probably a, a lot harder, although you can certainly have all sorts of weird goals in you know, building a product. But when you're talking about ending homelessness, the goals get fuzzy really fast. And I do a lot of, a lot of training on how to set clearer goals, but a lot of the learning happens in just saying, you know what, the first Right, right. The first written version of our goal is probably going to sound great today. And when we come back and look at it in, in two weeks, or we in the impact method, we work in two-week sprints and 60-day cycles. So we have four sprints in a 60-day cycle. And when we look back at the end of a cycle, we usually realize that some of our goals we didn't achieve very well because what we thought was a brilliantly clear goal 60 days ago actually is totally not clear and didn't really make sense at all. And it's really, really hard to write a clear goal. And it takes a lot of practice and a lot of writing bad goals um, to get there. Yeah. And being forgiving of yourself when you do write the bad ones. Yeah. Because it just like, do it, it was... It, and it was just the the best goal given the moment at the time. And we inspect and adapt and we learn, right? right Which is sort right. of like the core underpinning of Agile. So, so you started referencing to the impact method. And I know that's really sort of the backbone of how you work with your clients. Um, and, and given what you and I have talked about, right, it, it seems to share some commonality in what we think about as classic Agile principles, mm-hmm. even, right, and, and I mean principles, right, You're, you've already alluded to some of the practices, like sprints and multiple sprints sort of making a cycle, and the, even though we wouldn't use that word, but that idea is not uncommon. Um, yeah. 
So what describe for us just a little bit more about like what the impact method is and, and how it does sort of have some of those underpinnings of, of what you understand to be agile. Sure. So the impact method is built on three principles, if you will, three core pieces that really every business or group of people needs if they want to be achieving goals. Um, and one is, I call it PAM in my head. You need to have a process of improvement. That's how you get, that's your where you're getting anywhere. And there's a ton of agile, like is a process of improvement. That's the iterative piece, right? Yeah. Um, and then the other two pieces are you have to have um, an actionable strategy, which means you ask, so people throw the word strategy around, but it's not strategic, it's not strategy if it doesn't have a goal and a set of tactics to achieve that goal. Yeah. You just have tactics, it's not a strategy. If you just have goals, it's not a strategy. Um, and if you have tactics that don't point towards your goals, who knows what that is? That's just, you know, running on a, on a, on a rat wheel. Um, so uh, that piece, that element of having a high-level strategy and really connecting it to your sprints, that is something um, that I probably really kind of is out of the scope maybe of Agile in many ways. Um, so that's probably a little bit different in the impact method, but it's something that certainly people who are thinking about, you know, how does this fit into your business as a whole? If you, I think there's great value in connecting your largest business strategy to what you're doing that sprint in the next yeah. two weeks. And I'd actually, I, I'd say that that is actually like, the most agile organizations do that very thing. Because to yeah. your point, just you know, stuff in a backlog that you're taking through two-week sprints that is potentially shippable to a client at the end of, of your sprint, you know, if that's not done in alignment with strategic goals or customer goals or whatever they are, it's just building product for the sake of building product. And right. that sounds to me like if we build it, they will come strategy, which is not a strategy at all. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So, you know, what you were saying, like the, the, the best organizations do that. Nonprofits have to do that because they have all those people. And if you don't yeah. align that strategy <laughs> with what they're doing in those two weeks, they'll get all squirrely and go all over the place, especially if they're volunteers. Um, yes. And so the third piece is what I call your MO, your modus operandum. And um, there are some things that are kind of connected, I'd say, a little more scrum in here. Like, how do you actually organize your people? Because the MO is a combination of how do you think about how your people are organized? And then what's that core of your brand that's like, what's the personality of your organization? And are you attracting people who, you know, who are going to embody that personality? But I think one of the concepts that's built into this MO piece, I call it the blueprint. It's the way you think about how your organization uh, your group of people, right? What is an organization or a business if not a group of people working together? Um, is that kind of open systems thinking. I call it distributed leadership. So it's not about who's in charge of who. People become in charge of outcomes. And then it's about, you know, who's what outcome is infringing on somebody else's outcome. Well, that's where you need to coordinate. And you need a role um, that, uh, that, that kind of resolves the natural conflicts that will arise um, in that kind of situation. So that 
open system distributed leadership model. I think um, it, I've baked it into the impact method. I think it's really behind a lot of the thinking in Agile and Scrum. Um, how do we really bring people together to work more effectively and be happier? And that, to me, I say, right, we're building a trellis. Um, we're not building a machine. And the trellis is our accountability. It's what we're trying to achieve. And we let the people self-organize on the trellis. We do not it's like organically grow. Yeah. Exactly. If you try to control people, let's say you have, you know, one or two CEOs or a set of VPs and they're all trying to like move people around like pawns, that's incredibly inefficient and ultimately it makes people miserable. Um, so self-organization makes people happier and it creates it gives you a better if so we talked about earlier i'm a sailor so i like to put things in navigation terms that's what kind of boat are you on and if you want to be on a, a faster boat a more agile boat agility is really important in sailboat racing because you want to be able to turn on a dime and not lose speed um that is important so if you want to be on a better boat you have to change the way you organize your people yeah, and so I'm glad you pointed to self-organization because I started getting curious about it when you you were talking about the that that second um, thing, right? The actionable strategy, mm -hmm. and um, and uh, you know how important that is, especially when you have volunteers. And so um, that's right. One of the things we struggle with the women in agile organization, like it is essentially all part time and volunteer led and balancing the what is the strategy and the actionable goals with the self-organization of passionate people that right if we think about the Dan Pink model or at autonomy mastery and purpose right you also want to give people some autonomy of what are the goals that they're most passionate about, that they really get purpose-driven about. So then the things that they're doing kind of connect all together. And so obviously the macro purpose of the nonprofit and a purpose of that volunteer are going to over-intersect or they're not going to be volunteering for that nonprofit. But yeah. as you think about, and, and this directly correlates to agile teams that work in large enterprises when they may or may not get to play into what is our product strategy, right, of what we're building. Yeah. So how do you see that self-organization around what the actionable strategy is play out and how that cascades into the modus operandi of how things are actually structured and happen? I think, you know, the kind of the linchpin of making that happen is you really need to understand uh, the difference between an outcome goal and what in academics they call a process goal, but I call it an execution girl, goal, <laughs> execution girl, an execution goal. So it's <laughs> the, the outcome, the reaction that you're trying to get that you don't have direct control over. That's an outcome. And our, our highest level goals are usually outcomes. We wouldn't be coming together as people if we weren't trying to achieve something that we didn't have con direct control over, right? If I want a sandwich, I can go make myself a sandwich. Um, you know, there's <laughs> there's no real outcome there. Um, so you need to under separate your outcome goals from your execution goals or process goals. What are what is your goal for the actions that you do have control over? So you might say, you know, I'm going to, um, you know, test 
20 different things. Um, it doesn't mean you're going to have the outcome, um, but it, you might succeed at tw testing 20 different things and still have a bad outcome. Um, and that's okay, right? Then we have success uh, in, in our actions that we have control over. So kind of to tie it back to what you were asking, why is this important? Because we want to let people, you know, we decide as a group, what are the outcomes we're achieving? And, but once we say, okay, you know, we have a certain, quite a bit of autonomy in saying, well, this is the, um, this is our execution goal. This is our process goal. This is what we can do that we have control over. And you probably want to all have a buy-in in a group to make sure that you have the best goal in place. But then how one person's going to own that execution goal. And they need to have control over, you know, how to, what are the things we're actually going to do to achieve this. Um, and somebody who owns the outcome at the end of the day, I like to have every goal has an owner. Um, that might sound a little familiar. And that's the person, you know, who who has the final say related to that thing. And I think yeah. when it comes back to, I think, especially women and gaining our voice, if you get that kind of clarity and you say, you know, the outcome goal is the outcome goal. But if I have a different view as to, you know, what is the execution goal, those are the tactics that are going to achieve that outcome that is when you speak up. If you have a, a, a view, it's a it's around those execution goals. And if you can get that clarity, then you know, speak up about how you're going to get there. Speak yeah. up about the tactics. The, where you're trying to go is a matter of opinion of the group. Um, and you can, you know, if you, if you want to be quiet or if you're just in agreement, fine. But it's really, you know, hone in on what is the doing piece that we have control over and speak up there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you gave me a perfect glob here around kind of bringing it back to, you know, in women and finding our voice. You're listening to you talk. At, at the end of the day, the work you're doing is not all that different than what many of us do as scrum masters or product owners or agile coaches or consultants, whatever it is that we're trying to up the game of agility within the organizations we're working with. Um, it's really about like working with executives, working with teams on new ways of thinking and new ways of working that are very human centered. Yeah. And so given your experience as a, as a female, right, leaning into all of this very complex, nuanced work, that is much more art than science at the end of the day. Um, what tips and tricks and sort of insights do you have to share with our listeners about what's allowed for you to be successful and some nuggets they might be able to harvest for themselves? Um, yeah. So one is you're probably really smart. <laughs> Most people are. Um, you're smart enough, at least. Yes. If, if no one has told you today, you're really freaking smart. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are really smart. So if something doesn't make sense to you, then it probably doesn't make sense to a lot of other people. There's probably yeah. something wrong with that. So if you're sitting there going, this doesn't make sense. And for me, that's what drives me. I believe there's always a better way. And I'm like, why are we doing it this way? This seems way too hard or way too complicated or it shouldn't be this way or this doesn't make sense. You don't have to know the answer. You just have to call out and say, hey, this 
doesn't make sense. And I can tell you as a business owner, that has taken me far. In, in sales, that helps me. I sit down in front of my clients when I got brave enough to say, I understand your problem. I have no idea how we're going to fix it, but I know this awesome process that usually works for me and I can take you through it and chances are we're going to fix that problem because that, you know, you have a real problem. I can tell you that. Um, so, you know, speaking up and being ready to say, I, you don't have to know the answer. That's the trick. You just have to say, this doesn't make sense. There's got to be a better way. Um, speak up about that has helped me um, in, in selling to clients. It's helped me when I work with clients, you know, I'm working directly with executive directors. They are CEOs, They're the, and I'm in their meetings with their teams telling those CEOs that what they just said to their team, I disagree with. <laughs> right in front of their team. And um, I'm always, you know, a little sensitive about that moment. But at the end of the day, I'm not saying do it this way. I'm saying I'm hearing a problem. I'm seeing a problem. This doesn't make sense to me. And I think, you know, as women, we can bring that up. And we probably have been watching very closely because we tend to be really good at observing and watching. So, um, you know, don't worry about the answer. You just have to be smart enough to know that there's an issue and, and, and speak up about that and bring that has always brought me success. And at the end of the day, what makes people the most valuable people on the team? Um, I like to break it up. There's there's head work and there's hands work. Hands work is doing and it's important, but it's not a high value activity. It's the head work. It's the thinking. And those people who say, this doesn't make sense or there's got to be a better way, you will be the highest value person on your team. And you will bring vulnerability to the group. You will normalize vulnerability. That's a good thing for everybody. Um, and you will be, you know, you will be seen as a shining star for speaking yeah. up about what doesn't make sense. I love that. And, and the delineation between, um, you know, hands work and head work, right? We think about knowledge work. Um, sort of stuff. But I'm curious how you would fit heart work into sort of oh, your description there. That's a good question. I think head work and heart work are really um, are, are similar. No one's ever asked me that before. But I also think, you know, I deal with, I call all my people are heart-driven people. Everybody mm. in the nonprofit space is heart-driven driven. Um, so, you know, heart work could be, I think people who are heart driven, they might be hands people, they might be head people. But the thing about heart work is money is usually not the primary driver. It's yeah. people want to be a part of solving the problem. They want some stake in, you know, I'm showing up to solve this problem. So having those clear goals, having, you know, there's so much in the impact method, a lot of it comes from agile that's around alignment. And that alignment when you're heart driven, because it's not money that's driving you, it's getting that aligned team, getting everybody rowing in the same direction. And if the direction is something that people's heart is in, you will go really fast. 
Yeah, and actually, I think there's a there's so much I could say here. <laughs> We're starting to get short on time, um, but I'll offer a couple things. Um, one, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to a coach that I'm working with. Her name's Maria Bailey. Um, she's amazing, and a thing she's really turned me on to in my new awareness is what is it like to think from my heart? Because thinking from my heart, for me at least, is very different than thinking cerebrally and from my brain. And that you're you're and I bring that up because um when we're really smart, right? And we've kind of all validated, we are all really smart people, our brains can come up with millions and millions and millions of ideas. And where we might not have agreement is on what is the best idea. But where we can find alignment is in the purpose and in the outcome and in our heart. Yes. And by bringing in that heart thinking, I believe it makes it easier for us as humans um, to get better into a mental model that I think is really important, which is a bias towards alignment over agreement. Because if we always try to get agreement on the ex tiny little details of everything, we will just spin and spin and spin analysis paralysis. But if we can just align on, yes, for our purpose, this idea is not like, yeah, it will help us. Is it maybe the best one? I don't know. But there's something about using the, the hands, the, the head and the heart together that I think really serve what you're talking about there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you just said something so important. Alignment is not necessarily agreement. And in mm -hmm. fact, I would say agreement is not the goal. One thing going back to Margaret Wheatley and thinking about what makes open systems strong. Um, for any of you who are familiar with the concept of anti-fragile, like we want to be sustainable. One of the ways to be sustainable is to be anti-fragile. And so one of the ways we do that and I built this into that organizational, that trellis structure I talked about earlier, is we want to intentionally disrupt our own system. And so we want to layer in those roles when you're in charge of outcomes and when you get to you know, mix up, we're going to do this a whole new way. Our execution goals are going to be drastically different. Intentionally disrupting the way you do things has huge benefit. And you don't get disruption with everybody agreeing. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And we don't want the disruption to turn into chaos. That's why we need some structures in place. We need that trellis to keep us, you know, sane. And we need those sprints to help us, you know, kind of not, you know, sprints I, to me are like, that's your time to put your head in the sand and just focus on what's on front of you. But you have to keep picking your head up and exposing yourself to change and vulnerability and difference. Um, and these things are all good for us. And we have to be increasingly anti-fragile because we are in a world, you know, kind of started with the internet, I think, that really shook things up and made change happen really fast. But we are in a world where major disruptions are coming and they're coming more frequently. You know, we're in a pandemic right now. This is a huge disruptor. Um, and for those organizations and those people who have systems in place that thrive with disruption, which I think is, you know, what what is so much behind Agile. It's like Agile almost reacted to how do we deal with all this chaos? But what it did was it created a set of processes and a way of thinking that embraces 
chaos and embraces disruption and gives you a way to work with it. And those people who can do that are going to thrive in the future. And those people who can't, they're not going to make it. Yeah. What a perfect bookend, sort of that exploration of agility things. There's so much in there that that resonates with me as someone is, when we were um, prepping, I called myself kind of a pure play agilist sort of thing. Um, that, That just sounds so like the way that we think and we talk. So I think you're even more of an agilist than you really even know. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll take you officially as one of us anytime. We'll take it as a badge of honor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So before we wrap up, three kind of things I want to um, hit on. And I know this episode will be a little longer than than some of our others. Um, but I want to talk about, right, it's easy for me to make up a story that, um, as the women in Agile constituency, like the reason we exist is because there isn't yet parity around, you know, the number of women in our career and the compensation. And so much of that's, you know, sort of exacerbated by that most Agile work shows up in technology. And that's not, right, It's that's changing and it has been changing over a couple of years. There's more Agile in other places. But, right, we, we tend to show up in male-dominated spaces and in office environments and all of these kind of things. But I make up that a lot of times in nonprofits, like I think of women being in nonprofits more. But how do how do you see gender dynamics showing up and shaping the work you do and the types of organizations you serve? Oh man, I mean there are many women in nonprofits, but the top level nonprofits where the big bucks are and the big it's still male dominated. Mm-hmm. Um so you know, I think as women we run into this all over the place. Um and it's so it's definitely there. I, in the world of um people who specialize in nonprofit fundraising, it's still like the men are very much there in the big money. So, you know, you climb, you climb that ladder and what do you find? A world full of men. And on top of it in the nonprofit industry, you get very wealthy, um, high-powered men. Yes, fortunately, they tend to have a philanthropic, we want to help the world bent. Um, so, but it's definitely still there. Um, maybe not quite as intense as in the tech industry, um, but there's there's a lot to get go through. I'll tell you a little story about a time that I was really confronted so blatantly with um, with male sexism in the workplace. Um, and this this experience was a pivotal moment for me. And you might not get this blatant experience, but it's happening around you. And so I want to share it with you so you can think about a story to tell yourself when you really um, realized that you're, you're where you belong, um, or you're, you can go higher, you can go as high, you know, as you want to go and you'll belong there. If you get there, you belong there. Um, so I was the executive director of a foundation that was sponsored by a corporation. So, um, there was the CEO of the corporation and I had my office in their offices. I'm the CEO of the foundation. We're like the two top people and somebody came in to sell us health insurance. And I'm in the conference room in advance, and I'm, you know, I'm just doing a little work waiting for everybody to come in. And the insurance guy comes in and says, you know, like, oh, can you make some copies of this? And I was just like, Ooh. oh, 
I don't even know how to use the copier. You can talk to my assistant, that guy over there, and I'm sure he'd be happy to make some copies for you. <laughs> so, you know, being, you know, being taken as the secretary when I'm like, you know, the, the second person who needs to worry about making a decision whether I'm not going to hire him. And then he called, he talked about the women who basically run most of his business for him, the girls in his office. Um, and that really just kind of sealed the deal. I was like, well, here it is, people, right in front of you, you know, right in front of me. It happened so blatantly. And, um, and rather than feel discouraged, I just took it as a moment of, this happens, but you know, I'm a woman. I'm I'm the CEO in the room, and you know, you can do what you want to do, but I'm not going to do business with you. Um, yeah. And that moment really was a pivotal moment for me, just to own my seat. I didn't cave. I didn't make copies for him. I just I knew where I was sitting, and I just owned it. And that might take. You know, I think one thing in tech, right, we have a lot of young people in tech, and you might be a, a young woman, and you might not be in that seat yet, um, but own the seat you're in, and, um, and when, when, when sexism comes at you in the face, put it back on them. You don't yeah. have to, you don't have to absorb it. You know, the old kid saying, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you, you don't have to let you can just put it back on them. I'll tell you one of my favorite ways. I have a pet peeve about men talking about the girls they that work in their office, and I always just say, "Wait, do you hire children?" <laughs> and just put it right back on them. And I just, I just, you know, let it go off you. Let it make you stronger, um, and keep speaking up. I love that. I love that. Thank you for sharing that story, Sarah. I think that's fantastic. I think it's a um, a wake-up call for courage as well uh, for all of us, um, yeah. which is really great. It's courage. So, and remember, when you speak up for yourself, you are the disruptor, making yourself more valuable in your organization and making your business stronger. So it, it's courage, but the output will benefit you and everybody else. That's great. All right, two final wrap-up questions, or I guess it's really one final wrap-up question that I ask everybody. And this is a teaser to really turn people on to ideas for their own professional growth. So what are you doing to kind of up your game? What are you geeking out on? What are you studying? Oh, man. So I always love to circle back to the things that influenced me. Um, I'm now thinking about, so I thought a lot about nonprofits as an industry. Now I'm thinking a lot about nonprofit consultants as an industry um, because they're suffering from a lot of the things that I saw in the nonprofit industry. They're like 10 years behind everybody else. Um, so I like to think about large systems. That's me. That's my geekiness. I'm like, how do we make this whole thing better for everybody? But my kind of process for doing that is almost always the same as I say, we need to make this more consistent. So I'll, I'll go through something that I learned from somebody else and say, 
well, these things make sense, but why do they make sense? And then once I understand why, I realize, well, the, these, these three things they did really fit that reasoning. But these other two things are kind of squirrely, and I'm constantly eliminating the squirrely things, the things that aren't really consistent with why we're doing what we're doing. Um, so that's kind of like my, you know, repeated geeky process. Um, and But really thinking about industries and how we change an industry um, is where I'm thinking about now. Yeah, and actually, I, I think there's there's some interesting inspiration here listening to your conversation. Um, one of uh, the recent episodes I've recorded has talked about like sometimes finding careers that, as an agilist, aren't agile jobs, right? And I'm kind of using quotation fingers. Like, I'm picking up on there are so many transferable skills we have as agile kind of experts and thought leaders that are transferable for that industry you just referenced, which is nonprofit consulting. Yes, like exactly. So much transferable stuff there. Yeah. Just go back to, you know, take your agile training, take your scrum training, whatever training you have and say, well, why does this work? And you will discover if you haven't already that those principles about why it works are universal to how all humans work together and you can apply it to basically any industry at any level. Excellent. Well, Sarah, what final wisdom do you want to share with listeners today? Oh my God, I think we've probably said it, but be brave. That's my message often to nonprofits, and especially my message to women is it does, it it's not just gonna necessarily be planted in your lap. Be brave, go out and get it. Don't be afraid to stand out a bit. You're really going to, you know, you might get dinged a little, but basically you're going to be okay. I have never regretted standing out. And almost every time I thought I was about to step off a cliff, I learned that it was just a teeny little step. <laughs> I, only, I only moved one step away from where I was before and I was perfectly okay and on stable ground. But the moment before I could have sworn, oh my God, I'm about to do this big crazy thing. Um, and I've all, you know, it, we almost always land somewhere stable if, if we do it from our hearts. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Thank you so much, Sarah. This has been a joyous chat. I've really, I, I hope our listeners have enjoyed uh, hearing it as much as I've enjoyed talking with you today. It's been lovely to get to know you through this, this exploration. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's really my pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. It's brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile nonprofit organization and Accenture Solutions IQ. We hope you've learned something new and invite you to tell a friend or a coworker about the podcast. And you can always go online to womeninagile.org to learn more about our initiatives and find additional inspiring podcast conversations. Thanks for listening to this Women in Agile podcast episode. Find more inspiring conversations by visiting womeninagile.org slash podcast checking out the podcast series on iTunes or visiting your podcast application of choice. If you have an idea for a topic, speaker, or feedback on an episode, please reach out to us via email through podcast at womeninagile.org.